Everyone, welcome back to Climate Transformed. Now, Adam Anders and I, we had the pleasure of meeting at dinner about eight weeks ago in London. And it was one of those conversations that, where I came away and sort of rang the teams and said that we need to get this guy in for a conversation. Adam is the founder of Antera Capital and is a leading VC in, in, the, in the realm of ag sciences in the general context. And I know that that is a Probably of all the very broad topics, Adam, that we talk about, this is probably the broadest, broadest one we have. So we've made a conscious effort that we need to be doing a lot more in this, in, in the space, just because at the end of the day, and I'm sure Adam's going to get into some of the macro numbers about the, the scale of our food, of our food crisis that we have globally. But this, again, we go back to the basis of what we do here at Climate Transform. This shit's just too important not to get right. And ag sciences is going to be at the sort of the epicenter of what a sustainable global economy looks like in the in the years and decades ahead. Adam, I never do anyone justice in terms of their own their own their own biography and CV. So I'm going to get you to introduce yourself in in, in just a moment. But everyone, as per as per normal, there's no monopoly no monopoly on good questions on, on this side of the this side of the desk. So please pop them into the the Q and A functionality at the bottom of the screen, and Adam and I will get to them over the course of the next 55 minutes or so. Adam is calling in from, from Amsterdam. So do me a favour, give the audience a, a synopsis of you and your journey and how you got to be running Antera run, and how you got to be running it out of Amsterdam as well. Will do, for sure. First of all, thanks very much for having me on Climate Transformed, Paul. Great meeting you a few weeks ago. Even better to have a chance to speak again now and perhaps speak a little bit to your, you know, your audience. By way of background, so my journey begins on a farm in rural South Australia. My father also had a farm machinery dealership. And my connection with ag tech, it even began, well, by name at least, I, I started a company when I was at university called Ag Tech Proprietary Limited. It still exists, but all I was doing was buying and selling some tractors in order to finance my way through uni. The rest of the journey deviates substantially from agriculture and food for a bit there, and I end up some management consulting, a fintech startup in London, a couple of other venture or PE-backed things, and the Amsterdam connection is because I married a Dutch woman. But I was lucky enough to join Rabobank, the world's largest food and ag bank then, as the deputy head of their private equity group. And it's there with two co-founders of Antera. We came up with the idea of starting Europe's first food and ag tech venture capital fund. Well, first, first of scale, there were regional funds. This is now first presented in Feb 11. And it kicked off as Antera at the end of 2013. And we've been on the journey since. Excellent. But I know you've got a, you've got a very, very good presentation that you'd like to share with the, with the audience. If you could just share your screen and we'll dive into that and then walk through it and open it up to, open it up to some broader Q&A. Excellent. So Paul asked me to provide a little bit of context. It's always difficult on a channel where you'd expect people to fully appreciate the magnitude of the food issue. I don't want to, to, to throw out too many slides on that. So just one on us. So our mission is to transform from the food economy. We are looking at empowering farmers, providing animals with a better quality of life. And we want to help consumers as well, but through driving positive wellness in what we eat rather than the traditional human health biotech area, which is primarily drugging. Framing the size of the problem, we're talking about the biggest user of land, 70% of fresh water, the biggest employer, 2.4 billion a very large piece of global GDP, and all of us, of course, rely on food every day. But it's also a broken system, and it's in need of radical change. It's from being the most environmentally destructive product that we consume. It's the one industry that entirely relies on the environment. 
And yet one could argue that we're actually managing to destruct that. The food economy is failing both in terms of its reliance on subsidies, the lack of a reward for farmers on a risk-reward basis, and there's a bit of talent leaving the food industry as well and an ageing population farming. Meanwhile, what we're eating is leading to an obese malnutrition problem in the developed world and a malnutrition problem that's not getting better has in fact got worse in the last few years in the developing world. And so food, one could argue, is a driver of disease as opposed to health in the present way that we're approaching our food and the production of our food. So in Antera or at Antera, we think of it in terms of innovation solutions to this, not fixed asset land investing, but how could technology and entrepreneurs and supporting great entrepreneurs actually help us solve this? And in our opinion, it's time for the fourth food revolution. By that, we mean the first one being a few thousand years domesticating plants and animals, a hundred odd years of industrialization, which obviously led to feeding many, many more people. Then there's a patch of circa 50 years of the Green Revolution, where we did a spectacular job of driving yield, and that was with fertilizers, pesticides, use of antibiotics and growth promoters. But it would appear now that in retrospect, even that focus just on yield or producing calories has led to this situation where the way we farm through that period is not sustainable and the type of food we choose chose to to grow or produce is not not giving us the health outcome that that we think is optimal or not sustainable at a human level at a human health level and then we look at the gaps in terms of technology and where it might be in food and agriculture and just the two technology pillars for Antara, digitalization and biotech. And on a digital framework, the left-hand side of this slide that I'm sharing, we're talking about two of the least digitalized sectors in the global economy. And on the biotech side, it's always more difficult to wrestle to the ground exactly how to define what being behind in biotech is. So we just rip out the example on the right-hand side there of herbicides alone. And here we're looking at herbicides are the single biggest category of ag input sales. And the single biggest selling herbicide is glyphosate, or commonly known as Roundup. And just using my pointer, if you can see it, that's a molecule that was discovered in 1970. It's been off patent for years. But more importantly, with about more than 5 billion of sales per year, more importantly, there hasn't been a new mode of action discovered in herbicides in more than 30 years. And that for us is indicative of the largest area having the biggest problems in terms of what we would call a, a biotech innovation desert, something we might choose to talk more about, Paul, as we continue this discussion. So for Antera, across our two technology pillars, digital and biotech, and across the food and agriculture value chain, quickly around the block on the things that we find interesting, exciting on the digital side, there's the bioinformatics piece. Very exciting, overlapping biotech and digital. There's on-farm, where it's everything from advice on-farm or how to get your ag inputs on-farm, the offtake, getting a fair price, getting more information, either insurances or hedge or loans or transparent pricing or perhaps taking out the middleman to the middle of the value chain, decreasing waste, optimizing production processes to the end where it's about getting fresh produce with better shelf life and hopefully more nutritious into the hands of consumers. And that might be information about nutrition, information about allergens, 
it might be information about carbon footprint and sustainability. On the biotech side, it's everything from genetics to biological alternatives to traditional ag inputs or more and more environmentally friendly alternatives to ingredients, alternative proteins, and ultimately food that makes us healthier, perhaps with a full medicinal claim, or just working to actually help discover, promote, produce the food that actually makes us healthier each day, as opposed to driving some of those disease and health issues that our present food system is doing an unfortunately good job of propagating. Another topic, which I hope, Paul, I'll let you dig into the sweetest spots and perhaps some places that we're not so excited about on this framework, but I'm, I won't do that while I've got a slide up, I think, unless you ask me to bring it back up again. And for me, that's a once around the block of Antera and what excites us. So I move back to chatting with you. Mate, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Where do we start? It's literally impossible to talk about a narrative this big in an hour, right? Because again, if you want to get into the weeds, well, and look, the reality is we, we do need to get into the weeds on all of the on on the slew of these different things. But so, mate, forgive me if I'm jumping. I'll jump all over the place a little bit because it's 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 just such a compelling a compelling conversation. The thing that jumps out at me, and, and it was the thing that jumped out at me at dinner as well, is how is it possible? that we've had such a lack of innovation in herbicides in the past 30 years, given everything we've seen in regards to particularly particularly human, human, human health in terms of the medical side of things, has advanced so dramatically in the last, in the last, over that same time frame. How is it possible that herbicides remain anchored with 1980s technology? So do you mind if I answer first in terms of how it's possible that our food system and ag tech and food tech are the last 12% of global GDP that actually goes through a tech transformation and then perhaps pivot to why herbicides might be a little bit slower than even the rest of all of food and ag tech? Because I think it's in that context that you get to, I think, the right outcome. So there's been a lack of entrepreneur-led innovation in our food system because of factors like Look, being in an annual innovation cycle for on-crop annual crops is just, that's difficult, that's slow. You've got cyclicality that comes with weather and and that, that, that known elements of the cycles that also our food system goes through with disease pressures yearly and in and out. You've got very powerful corporates interspersed with fragmented pieces of the value chain. So fragmented farmer, very concentrated ag input sales piece, Bayer, Basef, Corteva, Syngenta. And then you go to the farmer dispersed again, then you end up with the offtake, the ABCDs, very concentrated, processing, fragmented. And by the time you get to food retail, we think of it as a global scale as being quite fragmented. But per country, the top three food retailers, food grocers, normally have above 60, 70%. In fact, the Australia, where I'm from, or the Netherlands, it's above that with the top three. Then you move to people being just very emotional about our food. So you don't always get a rational discussion or a rational decision when we talk about food. And traditionally, the dollars, the venture dollars didn't come into our space. And if the venture dollars don't arrive, you don't have the experienced entrepreneurs. I would say that that, when we kicked off Antera in 2014, the public available information said there was only 400 million of global food and ag tech investing. 
reports now position that around about double because they find a few deals looking back. Sorry, and sorry nothing. to interrupt, and that's and that's over and above what previously when you started the Monsantos in the world when you were starting, what they were doing with R and D. Oh no, I, I don't count that. I mean that they are incredibly low as a percentage. Monsanto was an exception, but in general, food companies are very low as a percentage of their revenue. I don't have an exact number for you on how much they were spending on innovation, except that compared to other sectors, it's low, right? But what I would say is that from an innovative perspective, an entrepreneurial perspective, it was practically non-existent, right? And what we've seen is the size of the prize just gets bigger and bigger every year in terms of the known issues around what we need to do in order to produce enough food to provide sustainable, nutritious, affordable food to a growing world population. And at the exact same time, venture capital or venture backed entrepreneurs have disrupted just about every other major piece of the of the global GDP. And this last 12% is sitting there. And, and as the invested dollars get larger, the, the speed of adopting digital solutions gets better. The available technology in human health biotech becomes a larger, more efficient, more advanced sector with all sorts of facilitators along the way in terms of helping startups be more successful it makes the idea of also transforming this last 12% of global GDP even more attractive, right? Mm -hmm. So we see the beginning of the transition there. Now, why specifically would herbicides, first of all, herbicides fit perfectly in that narrative, applied as part of an annual, or often as part of an annual crop on the row crops, right? Huge concentration of power, as in Roundup under patent for its first X years, I think it's 25 and now off patent for several years, but the leading Roundup brand available, it now has 400 resistant weeds. It has a multi-billion dollar legal claim against it in the US, more than 40 billion, I believe, creating quite a drag on the, the Bayer Group share price. And it's not through lack of trying that the ag biotech majors haven't discovered a new herbicide, but they certainly have used traditional plant science discovery methods and through that have failed to discover anything. <laughs> right? Right. I mean, so we find ourselves in a situation where we're we're still using old chemistry that arguably is worthy of $40 billion worth of legal claims, but certainly is pretty damn good at its core job of killing and arguably too good. Got it. So man, let's take that a step. So let's stick with this herbicide theme. Where are we today in terms of the innovation, right? Because again, I'm 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 going to make an assumption. This makes a you may it, this makes a pretty dull presentation if we go well. Herbicides have done nothing for thirty years, and thank you very much. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to I make mean, an assumption from the party could, voice that there may be something on the horizon. Look, there is stuff on the horizon. So stepping out more broadly to the entire sector, we can. You could take the ag funder data, which said that there was 50 billion of food and ag tech venture capital investing last year. Pitchbook 50, puts sorry, the number 50 billion. billion. Pitchbook puts the number substantially lower, but still in the billions. We're we're a tens of billions sector now. Certainly downstream, and in particular, for example, in the European context, you had a huge chunk of that, 30% just in the piece of supermarket delivery led by the 15-minute delivery venture capital craze that went on. So you could take a bunch of that and say, look, that I'm not sure that fits the transforming the food system from a sustainability perspective, but it still leaves a good chunk of circa six to 10 billion 
in around the upstream area. That's real dollars that hopefully will mature to being a real transformation. And I think you can see certain themes in there attracting capital early. We've saw a lot of money going into, for example, vertical farming. We saw a lot of money in the early days going into providing advice to farmers. One of the very early big exits in food and ag tech was Climate Corp selling for just under a billion dollars, 30-odd employees, not fully disclosed revenues, but let's say sub-10 million of revenues, and Monsanto pinging that off. That really led to a flood of additional capital coming in saying, look, I'm interested in in." what that advice slash insurance piece might be worth and entrepreneurs that really help give the a tailwind to the sector. And but in that core area of herbicides, we didn't find companies that were discovering alternatives. A lot of the early ag biotech dollars went into biologicals. We're also significant investors in biological solutions. A, a company in our portfolio, Vestron, has a biological insecticide. But after several years of innovation and a lot of venture capital dollars, that sector is still less than 10% of all ag inputs. And so we set about an alternative way of looking at this, and that's to leverage all of what's happening in the non-food and agriculture venture capital space to see how we could bring change to our sector. In effect, one of the pillars of Antera's investment thesis is we're 15 to 20 years late to a technology party. How can we leverage everything that's been learned, the evolution that happened in other sectors and the facilities that are available, the resources that are available so that we can step change in the success and the results and the capital efficiency and the risk-adjusted, hopefully risk-adjusted returns and impact of what we're going to do in food and ag. Mm -hmm. And so very long way of getting back to herbicides. One of the companies that we actually we, we've been doing prime, we've done company creation through to Series A and some later stage investing. That perhaps also should have been a part of the introduction. I'm not sure whether the audience is more investor interested or outcomes interested. So I didn't want to emphasise the the fun side of it, Paul. But one of the companies we created from scratch, Encochem, was focused on applying cutting edge human health technologies to the problems that aren't being solved in plant science. And that company collected a series of of technologies and along the way, leveraging the human health ecosystem and, for example, one relatively widely used technology, DNA-encoded libraries, managed to discover not just one, but a series of new families of tools that we think have got the potential to be successful, but more environmentally sound alternatives to traditional herbicides. As in, perhaps we have there, in fact, at a relatively late stage of its development, we have there a new herbicide mode of action, but leveraging a different discovery than the majors have been using for the last period. So just to take that a step further, I mean, is the... Is the future of of the innovation at the bio, at the biotech level? Is it is is it really just simply leveraging the human health innovations that we have witnessed and putting that into plants and animals? Is it again? Pardon my pardon my the ignorance. No, I mean, that, but I don't think is, so. is it simple? Is it as simple as just we've got we've got the tools available? For us already, because we've done this with human health for the last thirty years, we just need to take it into take it into other parts, to take it into plants and, and animal products as well. 
I mean, the brilliant thing about backing entrepreneurs with great minds is that they always find a different way of looking at this. And some of that's coming. I mean, if you look at the quality of the science coming from E. Davis or Varken University here in the Netherlands, like two of the top three plant science, animal science universities in the world, there's great new ideas focused just on plant science and agricultural sciences, right? There's a long gestation period for those to be commercialized because if you're pointing into a market that traditionally didn't have venture-backed entrepreneurs. So when was the last time that a new ag input came to market entirely entrepreneur-led, owned, and taken to fruition? That's difficult because we haven't been that active sector. So Antera is choosing to look at the playbook that happened in human health life sciences and see how can we look at that monitor that and see where we can help support the entrepreneurs we've already invested in or perhaps create companies from scratch. And if you focus, we, we could do a similar analysis just on digital, but let's let's focus just on biotech because you're asking about that right now. I might get this time horizon wrong because I'm not a human health biotech investor, but let's say 15 years ago, most of the new drug discovery was done by big corporate. I believe that that's around about the time ago when the average cost of bringing a new human drug to market topped a billion dollars and time horizon was about 10 years. And entrepreneurs stepped up and said, look, for a billion dollars cost and 10 years, I reckon I can do it cheaper and faster. And we saw a transformation happen since then where we now have 70 billion plus per year life sciences venture capital market. And a transformation where what used to be 90% large corporate discovered uh, drug, 90% of drugs that are discovered, discovered by big corporates, to now between 70 and 80%, depending on whose data you want to take, discovered by entrepreneurs. Basically, the outsourcing of that discovery, high risk, high return um, piece of the value chain. And where do we sit in plant science right now? Well, we, we have a situation where the discovery of a new mode of action, and now I'm going wider than just herbicides, went from costing about 70 million per molecule to more than 320. The time horizon stretched out over 10 years. And we think at the moment when entrepreneurs can step up and say, look, for a cost base of that, the returns being a material multiple for that time horizon, I'll give it a crack. But the difference here is, you can give that a shot while leveraging the vibrant, efficient, and well-funded human health life sciences ecosystem. It's not as difficult as when life sciences did it the first time in human health. And that's part of our thesis. Now, does everything have to get stolen straight from human health life sciences? Hell no. That's just one of the places that Antero is looking. We would also love to find and do find fantastic things happening out of Viking University here in the Netherlands. Interesting. And and again, that that sort of that entrepreneur-led discovery of molecules, is that specifically driven in a lot of ways by the intersection of digitization and biotech? AWS is important to this process as the as the as the original as the original ecosystem was. Well, I, I think every incremental every incremental tech discovery makes that ecosystem more powerful. The more it disrupts the traditional way that large corporates operate, partly because they've got they've got so many more restrictions, so many more people, so many more gateways to decide when and how to allocate the capital. And they get very strict in their phasing and milestones. And 
entrepreneur might skip a few phases and provide you a cheap outcome, but they might throw out the entire process so that it's discovered in a different manner. You end up at a different place in the way that big corporate might think of it. And so I would say part of this is, in answer specifically to your question, now the big data side of things is really kicking in. But 15 years ago, just brilliant scientists and great entrepreneurs having a shot using different methods. Just now took, we have just, the benefit. It just took longer. It just took longer. Well, the, the, the entrepreneurs managed to do it much faster than big corporate. Now, if you could add in huge data sets, now if you could mimic those discovery processes using large data sets and AI, there's got to be a material chance that you're going to end up with a better outcome or a faster outcome or more options or a more refined target area. And that's what we're seeing. And then as we see those developments happen in human health, we'd like to be ready to actually bring that across to see those same fast, productive, more accurate, cheaper, more sustainable, less environmentally damaging outcomes also occurring in plant science and animal science. So let's talk uh, talk a little bit about sort of digitization trends in terms of driving supply chain. And I I go back to a story when I remember seeing the first ever TV commercial for Watson. And they started talking about blockchain in 2011 and how the, a lettuce could go on the blockchain. Now, if you actually had done the math back then, it probably would have cost something about $150,000 to put a lettuce on the on the blockchain back in back in 2013. And obviously, that's a that's an extreme example of using and maybe the blockchain to to monitor a tomato or a lettuce or stuff like that. It's just it's just a use case which is just probably not not required. But talk a little bit about the the processes of of digitization in terms of improving the supply chain, in terms of connected food systems, digital farming, mobile shopping, the stuff that the stuff that you're focusing on. Yeah, sure. So I would take that through each piece of the value chain, but let's bring that transformation up to date today because one of the things that we're definitely experiencing is COVID was devastating in so many ways. It was also very difficult for our food system in terms of food having to arrive direct to home in a different package size, no longer 25 kilo bags, but 200 gram and to the shopper's door. Restaurants closed because those 25 kilo bags were going to a restaurant or even larger stocks, perhaps going into the early stages of processing for the retailers and also sourced from different places. And that level of disruption took an incredibly conservative piece of our food system and quite fragmented and has led to massive change. And with that, a significant pickup in the amount of and the opportunity to use digital tools. Um, I would say for the first five years of our journey, it was really difficult to see, to have adoption and penetrate that thin margin, difficult piece of the food value chain. And now we see the opposite. We see a natural movement and the unfortunate events in the Ukraine and the impact on food commodity prices, but also energy prices lead to more need for being nimble, changing your decision, changing your distribution plans, changing your sourcing plans. So there's a really big tailwind for the for digital solutions in the middle of that chain. We've has that answered your question? Did you want to dive into some examples? No, well, mate, let's actually, you know what, let's, let's go into a few examples because, again, you've looked at companies like Produce Pay, which obviously is the start of this process. Yep. Yeah, describe describe Produce, what Produce Pay does. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's a Latin, a Latin American company that sort of bridges ag tech and fed tech. Yeah. 
Yep, I think that's exactly right. And I wouldn't even call it necessarily at the start of this process. I would say this is, well, this is a, a Mexican farmer who his family has been growing fresh produce for a very long time and as in a few generations. He gets his Cornell education and says, this system is broken. And it's broken in several ways. First of all, in fresh produce, there's no transparency of price. So you don't actually, there is no objective price for tomatoes, spring onions. Um, it's not like wheat or oil where you've got an efficient, trans, relatively transparent market. Second of all, you've got a short shelf life. So there's a limited time period within which to trade and assess. And there's some issues with the objectivity of that. And third of all, those two combine and you end up with 40% of the fresh produce in the US coming from Latin America, right? So one of the most important things in our food system is to eat more whole foods and nutritious fresh fruit and vegetables. You've got 40% of it coming in without price transparency. And of course, that leads to a whole bunch of middlemen. The average piece of fruit is traded two and a half times with each party taking five to 12%. So you've got a lack of price transparency, multiple handling, some of them adding no value and the middleman taking quite a bit and an area where we have some growth, but we need even more growth in our food system. And of course, those Mexican farmers, they don't have fair access to capital either. And produce pay solution, Pablo's idea, is to start with a financial product, a loan, and then add software as a service, as in assistance with your shipping, assistance with your customs, and hopefully lead to price transparency, some price information, introduce buyers, and lead with, in the end, a loan. So you've got better production, more production, and fairer finance and available finance for those Latin American growers. Some transparency on pricing, the most that we can deliver, but the more data we get, that gets better. That calm moment where you can actually see where your load of fruit is, its condition, whether it's been accepted and whether it's been paid for, whether it's then made it onto the next party who might have paid for it, and hopefully safely into a supermarket and to our consumer. And then perhaps an opportunity to introduce new people to trade with. That's the thesis and the solution at Produce Pay. You've just described Alibaba in 2011. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. And, and and lots of people start with fresh produce and say these huge pieces, they let's just go straight to building a marketplace. And the thing is, there's there's such an issue of trust with our food. There's such an issue of trust in handling fresh produce, shelf shelf life, short shelf life products that just saying, oh, let's make it a category on Alibaba. I mean, it, it hasn't worked, right? And... Honestly, even if it was just marketplace first, you've still got this situation where those farmers are underfunded. So getting them a financial product turned out to be an immensely worthwhile thing to do. I mean, we've financed already over three billion of produce coming out of Latin America into the US. And what, um, what's the average loan to those farmers? Because I assume most of those farmers are smaller, smaller scale farmers. No, no, no. This business is starting with larger farms. Okay. And and that's because at the moment in terms of credit scoring and actually facilitating those transactions we had to. It's an interesting conversation because from an impact perspective, Antero and I personally also want to help smallholder farmers. But the entrepreneur Pablo's view here is, first of all, look, 
our larger farmers are actually getting ripped off as well. Can't we just get them a bit more capital and a fair price first? And then when we've got more data accumulated, we will move further and further into the smaller holder, automated underwriting rules, larger losses, almost certainly, right? But then also hopefully bigger outcome and with the right underwriting rules, maybe even less losses, but a more yeah. difficult loan to write, right? Well, but it does sound very much like almost like a microloan market to some degree. It could morph into that. I mean, it sounds, it's a, it's a, again, with all, with all, any platform like this, obviously you can extrapolate where these things can go, but I mean, it sounds like it has incredible potential at sort of at every, at every level of scale. Look, in a perfect world, a company like that that begins as an ag tech, fintech business providing working capital loans to Latin American growers can become a leading software as a service platform, facilitate a far more efficient marketplace, taking out the middlemen. And then with that amount of data and flow, you end up with easily, and actually contrary to what I just said, with lower risk, banking the totally unbanked, right? And actually truly putting money and, and information and fairer pricing and a wider distribution into smallholder farmers' hands. Sure. Every beautiful, it is a beautiful outcome. And it's not the only company, of course, in the world of digitalization of food and ag tech that's doing this. There's some fantastic examples out of India and in the fisheries market out of Indonesia. And so this is a theme we're going to see a lot more of B2B marketplaces, but in the complexity of agriculture, there are more problems to solve than just putting it up on Alibaba. <laughs> Otherwise, it would have happened before now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but again, right. the, the the Alibaba analogy was purely to describe that this is the scale of something that you can you can think about, right? But what about you mentioned a company prior to us going live called is it called Agro Economy? Agro Economy. Agro Economy. Yeah. French yeah. company. Yes, sure. I mean, this is this is the distribution of ag inputs, and at so many levels, also another critical part of our food system. So basically, farmers at the moment primarily buy their ag inputs, certainly in a French context, from the local co-ops, right? But you're dealing with a situation where average revenue for a row crop farmer in France is 1,200 euros per hectare. Around about 600 euros of their cost base, well, first of all, profit. The profit they make is circa 50 euros a hectare, but that's after subsidies. And that's per, per annum. And that's per annum. Per, per hectare, per annum, right? Per hectare. Per, so that's multiple, yeah. multiple cycles, multiple cycles per annum. And then you end up with a situation where the middlemen are taking circa, circa 600 euros per hectare out. Now, there's a lot of work to be done in there in terms of delivering those ag inputs to the farmer, providing some advice. And there's some, actually, arguably, one could say it's not more complex than that, but it's a disproportionate amount of money for a relatively inefficient value chain. And Agriconomy set about saying, look, we just want to provide digital advice or easily available accurate advice to farmers, in effect, an e-commerce platform that then also provides lower cost ag inputs to those farmers. And call it take out the middleman or improve the customer experience, layer on if we can some regenerative farming or organic farming or just advice, and it's early days for that, and fundamentally put more of that power but also more of, more of those available profit dollars 
transferred from the value chain to the farmer. Now, no one's expecting no one's expecting that to go from fifty dollars a hectare to six hundred and fifty dollars a hectare. The notion of doubling your profitability is is conceivable, fifty to hundred, and that is it's totally it's totally uh, conceivable. And let's also be I should be careful and honest that that. that a lot of that piece, the middle of that value chain, it's a lot of it is handled, particularly in France in this instance, by by the cooperatives. And it's not that they're making a killing. It's just that they're inefficient. It's just that if the average farmer knew how much they were paying to get their ag inputs and have the local guy also coaching the equivalent of the football team, probably the soccer football team. And it's like, well, that's all well and good, but I didn't know I was actually losing 25 euros a hectare for that, <laughs> right, 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 or more than 100% of my profit or doubling of my profit. And and I think as we see digitalization of the agricultural value chain, we're going to see more and more examples of that. We see more and more examples. There are equivalent companies in Latin America. There's an equivalent company called Dahat in India that actually was the first agricultural doing exactly this also with a financial services product, a little bit an overlap of produce pay, but ag inputs focused. By the way, a company we work with, FMO, the development bank, and they're, they're proud supporters of, of Dahada. We would have been happy to be investors ourselves. And you'll see more examples of this crop up. In fact, just today, I was posting about the growth in food and ag tech in Africa. Wonderful example, because there you're dealing with a situation where there aren't tailored ag inputs for specific crops in Africa. There's not an efficient value chain to deliver ag inputs at, at all, let alone at a fair price. People, the large players don't want to deal with small quantities, as in, I don't know, half litre containers for a small older farmer. The distribution is not there. Mate, the fertiliser fertilizer shortage in Africa right now is going to be a diabolical problem in the next 12 months. Diabolical. And, and, and we're going to, and look, just in terms of where we can solve our food system problem, helping the farms in Africa is critical. Where we can solve our climate problem, that's critical. Where there's the biggest issue of malnutrition, Africa. Now, we do have a big issue of malnutrition also in America. It's solvable by just eating the available calories more wisely. But I think people deserve the opportunity to eat before they deserve the opportunity to avoid obesity. And unfortunately, it's still small in the scale of food and ag tech investing. But fortunately, just like Africa managed to completely jump the landline phase of mobile, of telecommunications that go straight to mobile, it would be an absolutely gorgeous idea if we could skip the more damaging parts of the green revolution, if you go back to the four phases on the slides that I presented, and go straight to something more sustainable, but also straight to something that's actually more efficient and allows those farmers to be more profitable, but also environmentally sustainable from the get-go. Right. So, mate, one of the things which I was absolutely blown away from at the start of this conversation, and it goes back to that these are incredibly complicated issues, but if you can simplify these things to their to their lowest common denominator, you you have an amazing head start. Plant-based proteins, and you made the point that before we sort of joined joined everyone that they are really trying to brand things that that are commodities that don't have brands, right? Meat doesn't have a brand outside of you buy, you might buy your meat from Whole Foods or your butcher, but the meat you buy isn't branded. Oranges don't have branded. I mean, banana, I'm sure bananas have, bananas have a brand, but I don't look at the brand of bananas I buy. Talk about that as an impediment 
to investing in plant-based protein, plant-based proteins, either meat-based proteins, which have been with us for a while, and the, the new hot thing, which is plant-based fish and salmon and the like. Talk a little bit about the problems that that sort of commoditization of the underlying product creates. Sure. I, I think we understand the opportunity, but just to define that, we were talking about a piece of our food system that's, as in animal proteins, it's one of the most corrupt places in terms of its carbon footprint, cruelty to animals, but also use of antibiotics, animal cruelty. So it's easy to stand up and say, I think we should do something about this, and we should, right? The plant-based alternative solution is not, I think, as easy as a lot of, say, venture investors decided it would be, at least in Antero's opinion. And what I mean by that is, and it's more than just the branded piece that we were discussing before, Paul, so I'll, I'll walk a little bit back, right? You're primarily competing in commodity markets, complicated. There's CapEx on the ramp up. That's never great for venture capital. Now, we threw out problems with capital intensive during the last five years when money was so damn cheap. But having lived through a few bursts and bubbles and getting burned a little bit in the clean tech boom and bust, Antero was quite disciplined, arguably too disciplined around that. Distributing a fresh produce product to a thousand doors per country, multiple thousand doors, that's difficult. These are complex pieces. And then you come to that branding piece. What we observed is that a lot of the companies in alternative protein could be great in terms of environment, might be great in terms of nutrition, although a fair old chunk of them are heavily processed, high salt, high sugar, high fat, right, to substitute for that flavor. So there's an alarm bell going off right there, right? At a personal level, give me more fruits and vegetables rather than the equivalent of Heinz tomato sauce, but, but for meat, right? But anyway, just stepping into that's that's one subset of it. There's a subset of it that are natural ingredients and wholesome in that sense of sustainability and nutrition. And then you have to build that brand. And so, Paul, what we were talking about before this kicked off was a lot of those early brands just branded the climate change element. And that's okay. And they build really strong brands around that. But that's difficult to own in the long term. And it's difficult for a new company to step up and just brand. And so we found a lot of the companies we looked at in that space, brand was both one of the biggest drivers of getting fair margins and a significant business running. And we saw it was easy to get lost in that section of the supermarket in terms of the way products were being branding and the lack of things emerging and the flood that was going in. And venture capital valuations went through the roof. So we actually found it a difficult area to invest in, despite the fact that it's been one of the biggest boom areas in food tech. Mate, do you have the same problem with vertical farming? Different problem, but we do have a problem with it. Sorry to all the vertical farming companies out there. (laughs) But is there, there, there again, a similar branding problem with vertical farming in terms of lettuce, lettuce is a lettuce at the end of the day? Branding lettuce is really difficult. Right. And local grow and organic is clearly a great way to go. And a couple of the winners in that space doing that, you you get the superior margins. That's fantastic. But it also suffers uh, from two other key issues. One is the capital intensity. And that got a lot of the capital you need goes into iron and glass and building things. And it's not as though you do that once. In the case of alternative proteins, you at least build a factory and it produces. In the case of vertical farming, that scale up is each unit. Right, so you need to get into your structured finance phase very, very quickly. From an Antero perspective, that was problematic. 
right? That's intensely capital intensive. Then you're producing a commodity competing against a sheet of plastic and some bamboo in Mexico or often in Europe, Spain, Morocco, the warmer countries uh, buy. So pretty fierce price competition or the largest greenhouse market in the world, the Netherlands, where there's an embedded capital base, right? Now, that said, the efficiency levels of some of these vertical farms are exceptional. There is a need for more of some of, I mean, I don't think we're going to solve the world by having more lettuce, the food problem. But there are some areas in the Middle East, Singapore, where the land's not available and actually the economics work very well, particularly if there's sunshine available to also really drive the energy cost issues, which have become more of an issue since. And when this reaches, this sector of food and ag tech reaches the tipping point that, say, solar or windmills did on land wind for energy, structured finance will step in and that'll be tremendous. For Antera, that capital intensity really caused us to pause. Talk a little bit about, about valuation. VC, climate VC is not immune from the challenges that broader VC and growth equity is faced with, with higher interest rates and, and, and sort of a, a more, a more well, one can argue, a more realistic outlook for, for, for valuation. Talk a little bit about the prospects for where, where, what you're seeing from a valuation standpoint. Yeah. And good look, I, I work in the theory, good companies always get funded. They're good enough, they'll get funded. But talk a little yep. bit about the valuation and valuation and how, what the, like some trends and if they've gotten more sensible. Yeah. I, certainly, we felt that things have got a bit out of control over the last couple of years. And we're lucky enough to share an office with some generalist VCs. So we can always do that cross check. Is our sector overheated or are all sectors overheated? <laughs> and, it, and we're in a small community, right? VC generally and food and ag tech VC even more so. And yes, things got very, very hot. And I think that's happening when entrepreneurs have got multiple term sheets in days slash a few weeks. This is a long-term relationship. You're talking even in a brilliant outcome, five years, but most likely could easily be longer. And if things don't go well, do you really want to make that type of decision in weeks or days? And do you really want to do it on the basis of the highest bidder? It seems like choosing a partner, a long-term partner in some form of talent contest to me. And as you saw that happening more and more, it became apparent to me that that's not the way, when I was on the entrepreneur side, that's not the way I would have chosen my board members, stakeholders, shareholder base. And it left me with a, a double problem because valuations were high, but also entrepreneurs making a decision on that basis. It was difficult for me to personally adjust and say, like, I really respect that. And as it got hotter and hotter, of course, raising large amounts of money at high valuations it's also a good decision for the entrepreneur. You back yourself. I can make, I'm going to have 10% dilution instead of 30. With that amount of money and a very competent, intelligent partner, I'm going for it. And that's fair enough. And yes, I think there has been quite a drastic change. I think if you look at what happens in listed prices, it's probably been mimicked, but we don't see it as acutely because there's a drag in the private equity in that broader sense, including VC market. And also some of it will be just that drag of not getting funded. So not just price adjustments. Good companies will get funded. Good companies will still exit. And a downturn like this does not last forever, right? Yeah. But I, re I think there's been a material correction that is certainly no worse in food tech and ag tech, but aligned with what's happening in the broader venture capital market. Got it. But let's get you out of here on this. I know this is the equivalent of asking me, of me asking you, what, who's your favourite child? 
But if you were to if you were to to take if you were to take fifty million dollars and invest in one area of of ag tech as broad as that subject would be. What's the thing? What's, so what's the thing? What's the area that's most exciting for you on a on a five year view? Oh gosh, I mean, look, it, it's not cheap to say this because we've been doing this for so long, and so I would look at the things we've actually been investing in. So I would look at that overlap of human health and how we're going to actually create safer, more environmentally sustainable but effective ag inputs leveraging the big brother sector. So I'd like to continue doing more of that. And the second place I would go to is the bit we were talking about, about the middle of the value chain, the inefficiencies, the lack of fair access to finance, the lack of fair access to information, but with a massive tailwind now because that first bit of disruption has opened the door for a digital transformation there where previously it was just so hard to get traction in the middle of the value chain. Mate, this is a fantastic conversation. I, we need to do a lot more of this. And there's, again, we could talk for hours on this sort of stuff. So look, really appreciate your time. You and I will catch up for, for a drink in London when you're next there. And Adam, thank you. This was really, this was great. Paul, thanks very much for the opportunity. And thanks to the crew at Climate Transformed. All the best. Thank you.